0: Welcome to Your Path to Nonprofit Leadership, the weekly podcast that features the very best in productivity and career development in the nonprofit sector. I'm your host, Pat McDowell, and happy to bring you ideas and resources so you can build your professional development plan. Thanks, as always, for listening and for your great feedback. Glad to bring you these weekly conversations with nonprofit leaders who are truly on the cutting edge of our sector. Speaking to somebody who's been on the cutting edge, I had a fantastic conversation this week with Matthew Zachary, who brings a fascinating story as a cancer survivor and a marketing expert who came to nonprofit leadership in a very non-traditional manner, um, but started a fantastically successful organization called Stupid Cancer, and he continues to bring a different approach to leadership that is both thought-provoking and refreshing. Of course, he's not afraid to ruffle some feathers, too, and you've got to check out his podcast. It's called Out of Patience, and the word patience is P-A-T-I-E-N-T-S, which we'll certainly link to in the show notes, and you'll get a sense of Matthew and his style and what he's doing to continue to push healthcare in particular. Well, I admit the title of this episode was intended to get your attention by raising the question of why you should not start a nonprofit or a charitable organization. And Matthew will give you some several specific reasons why. Uh, But he also sheds light on some important topics like getting your fair share from a corporate partnership uh, with your nonprofit and what books and websites he considers must-reads for anybody in nonprofit leadership and an interesting topic that he has had to explore which is when is it time to step down as a nonprofit leader, particularly if you're the founder, all this and much more in a entertaining and freewheeling episode of the path. Uh, Don't forget to check out the show notes for this episode. It's number 65. Just go to the podcast or the news page at patent and you'll find all the resources, some links as well as those books, Matthew lifted up and of course more information about him and the great work he's done through stupid cancer. And now through his Offscript Media Company. Speaking of resources, while you're on our website, make sure you connect with us. Learn more about ways we may be able to help you and your nonprofit. Uh, Perhaps your organization could use some help with strategic planning, facilitating a board retreat, or just fundraising and other realms of revenue generation. And of course, we'd love to help you personally with your journey into nonprofit leadership through our coaching or training programs. Without further ado, please enjoy my conversation with Matthew Zachary. Matthew, thank you for joining me on the path.
1: Patton, it is a stellar pleasure to be here on your show.
0: Well, you have had a fascinating history and story. I'm excited to unpack all that you've learned. And, And of course, your journey was not one that you always invited. You have been through some tough times, but you have made incredible progress for our sector. And I'm eager to talk about that and apply it, frankly, to the leaders that you and I both know that are struggling in some cases to be more effective. Uh, and so that's something we'll talk about. But let's for those that don't know you, Matthew, maybe share a little bit about how you came to this place in the nonprofit world.
1: Yeah, I I born and raised in New York City. I was a trained concert pianist and film composer. Going to undergraduate here in New York at Binghamton. Wow! And then six months before my graduation, I lost the ability to play piano with my left hand. My my fine motor coordination kind of evaporated, and I went misdiagnosed for months. And ultimately, I had <laughs> a fucking brain tumor. Oh my so gosh! So I had surgery, and they found that it was malignant and not benign, and it it, it skewed all the timeline shit, and you know. Man plans and God laughs. So yep, yep. was not able to go to grad school. Somehow survived a six-month, you'll be alive in six months, you'll be dead in 6 months. diagnosis. Oh. Fell back on plan B, so plan B became plan A, and plan B at the time was I fixed Macintoshes in the 90s. A very random niche skill to have in the 1990s <laughs> for, for wow. computers. So I became like the IT guy at all the ad, ad agencies in, the, in Manhattan. And I spent a decade learning brands and creative and desktop and Photoshop and just built an entire understanding of that whole universe of madmen. And at the same time, I rehabilitated myself and started playing piano again, although I would never be good enough to go to grad school and be John Williams. So right, right. that's like chapter one. And chapter two was I met a guy who was like the first guy who he had cancer, too in his twenties and he was bald and Jewish and from New York city. And ironically went to my university and I didn't know him. Wow. So then was Craig and Craig was this Alice in Wonderland rabbit hole catalyst that brought me into this world of cancer advocacy, which I knew nothing about. I didn't understand. And I was really pissed that it took me seven years to meet somebody like me having gone through The 90s, I I didn't have a 20s. My 20s were shot to shit because of side effects and treatments and all the crap. And um, Craig helped me understand what advocacy meant, at least to me. And it meant that I could create something that I wished I had that could help millions of people today. And that was in 2006. So that's chapter two. And then chapter three is why the hell did I decide to start a nonprofit with zero experience in the nonprofit sector? (laughs) Right. I feel like I just built a brand that happened to be a 501c3. And Stupid Cancer was born in January of 2007 from my second bedroom, living with my newly, uh, I think we just got married, my wife, and no kids. And I was willing to sacrifice giving up an entire lucrative career to figure out how do you build a community of angry Gen Xers that don't have a voice in cancer when everything is kids and old people. You knew was, there was a need.
0: You knew that there was, was a yeah. need. And, yeah, exactly.
1: My inner marketer was like, oh, my God, Steve Jobs is right. Never give someone what they want. You give them what they didn't know they needed or could have. Yep. yep. And that was the idea. I, mean, I feel like it just happened to be a nonprofit because I felt like that was where I could get, quote, unquote, easy money by writing grants. Right. Little did I realize, but that's for next. We can keep that. Yeah, we'll come back to that part.
0: <laughs> but, I mean, in other words, it really wasn't the, the type of organization. You just knew that this community was necessary. And then, I guess, nonprofit followed thereafter. Yeah, I'm also
1: like, I'm not a money guy. So I'm like a startup, venture, seed round, friends and family human. I, this anathema to just right. my, my day-to-day. Right. And, yeah, it was such a gestalt to realize, oh, my God, I could do This And and I think what helped support that decision was through Craig, my first peer, there was a bit of a Wizard of Oz curtain that opened up of other people that were Gen Xers trying to start or who had already started their own nonprofits. And I had a lot of professional support in here's how you do it. So I just took a different track and then I was just one of many groups. That started out as scrappy. We live in our second bedroom and have those social life people that give up their careers to try and make a dent in the universe.
0: Makes total sense. But I'm sure there were a lot of lessons learned. Or, or did you immediately kind of identify in, in some of those other organizations some of the flaws, I guess, in their structure? And that obviously influenced you? I think... One of the more unique aspects of starting a nonprofit and cancer
1: survivorship at a time when everything was Livestrong, Cure, ribbons and Wristbands yep. was that the idea of quality of life in cancer was not a narrative. It was like, oh, you do research? No, we help people today, not one day. And it right. didn't really resonate with people. Livestrong in its heyday did a good job to talk about cancer as a lifestyle. But I felt like there was a a discordance in the cultural consensus of what cancer was 15 years ago. Today, it's very different. We understand it's like a chronic disease, about quality of life. How do you make things suck less in time? It's about your stress and anxiety and finances as much as it is about your biology. It was very different back then. So initial hurdles were how do we go to market and prove that our mission is just as valuable as cure, again, niche to this particular segment of nonprofits.
0: It was very research heavy, right? I mean, you were, the research was everywhere, but not really the quality of life that you were trying to espouse. Right, exactly. And that that was the first hurdle is trying to create a national
1: public narrative, not just that young adults are kind of screwed because everything is kids and old people, but that our quality of life matters as much as our quality of care. That sounds jargony. But right, biology right. and psychology go hand in hand. And I guess the sub-narrative there, which, which I think attributed to why the young adult cancer movement worked, was, well, why is cancer so much different when you're not 80? It's like, well, our gonads work. It's about, <laughs> you know, having a family and doing normal things that you should be doing every day in your 20s and 30s, and all that comes to a screeching halt, and we deserve the right To have an improved life so we can become productive citizens of the country and contribute to the economy by raising kids and spending money on pampers.
0: Right, right. But I I take it, Matthew, as you looked around at the other cancer organizations, this demographic, this age group you were focused on was largely secondary in the larger kind of cancer institutions and organizations? Yeah, I mean, Craig worked in general policy, you know, the Children's
1: Cancer Act, and drug pricing and all sorts of health inequity is an accident policy stuff.
0: Right. But right.
1: underneath policy and I, we can get to policy in a second, but underneath that it wasn't just, you know, cancer patients deserve better beyond biology. It was like my own generation was really fucked by the system because most of the attention was to most of the people who got cancer which is reasonable over 65 but only six percent of cancers are under 40 which includes all the kids so where do we stand in a level of dignity as not 80 year olds and that's what really ground my gears the most So when I realized that this was about my own generation, it dawned on me that what happened to me 10 years prior, because this was 2006, I was diagnosed in 96, could still happen to someone like me. And if we didn't do it, it wouldn't get done. So that was the spark that said, fine, I'll do it as a nonprofit, but I'm going to make this like a brand. I'm going to make this like an agency. I'm not going to be donor dependent. I don't, I don't like begging for money. I, I yep. just have yep. my Woody Allen neuroses and I hope your listeners will nod their heads. I despise, I'm not a sales guy. I've done retail. I hate customer service. I don't want to beg people for a dollar. That just was not in my DNA. Right. So I made a point to figure out, and this was my life hack. How can you build a nonprofit? My, and the housing crisis was pending. This was like 07. Like everyone, oh, yeah. saw the, the, everyone saw what was going on. How do I avoid this? I was befell <laughs> with an incredibly unique opportunity. And this was about six months into my launch. And one of my mentors hosted the only AM radio terrestrial show in cancer. And her name was Selma Schimmel. She's passed. She was one of my earliest mentors. I'm channeling right. her on this particular show. Yep. She offered me the chance to do the first digital internet radio call-in show at, like ever and I took her up on the offer and I got behind a microphone I did radio in college I'm an NPR junkie and I just started to produce a weekly live radio show with callers and a live chat room called the stupid cancer show and that was what the funders were like oh my god something new shiny object let's yes, give him yes. money so i started to get commercial dollars as a nonprofit profit to produce content that was evergreen non-branded and unrestricted and i got lucky because this new internet thing that was coming along yes indeed befell like is that word again like and that's how i was able to start creating revenue to at least get it off the ground you know pay an intern Build a website. Little things that you forget about. Not, I was in my house for two years. There was no office, so you know the scrappy starters trying to get things done. The mom and pops. I hear that mom and pop isn't really something you should say anymore. Um,
0: in the interest may. of renomenclaturizing yeah. <laughs> our planet, <laughs> right. I think
1: they're called kitchen table
0: nonprofits now. Got it right. I think I've heard that as well. And but did, did and so, Matthew. That. The financial model. To the extent you kind of had a clear picture of where you were going, was it going to be sponsorship? You're like, hey, I, I'm onto something. I can produce content, generate revenue through sponsorship, and thus produce program that I want to do through Stupid Cancer. So I, I, I endlessly
1: channeled my agency friends, my, yep. you know, the yep. CEOs and the chief marketing people, and I asked them like who's the next consumer demographic that every brand is going to want to attach themselves to? And they said millennials. And I said, what's a millennial? <laughs> you know, we were Gen Xers, like we're still Gen Xers. So we were in our 20s and 30s. Now we're in our 40s and 50s. And how do you get millennial cancer survivors underneath a brand umbrella so you can basically do direct marketing to cancer people without sounding like you're shilling right. to selling to cancer people? And when you're right. a nonprofit, you can do it so another thing that happened I, I think this is this is a little unique to cancer is that between like oh six and 2010 there was a m- massive shift in understanding of how drugs were developed and this was after the human genome project manifested therapies that wound up not being about how old you were or where the cancer was in your body we call that geographic cancer right and right these drugs were helping any age group as long as you had a gene or this or this. So the drug companies started to realize that, oh my God, we can go after millennials and Gen Xers because they're more engaging. They'll tell us more stories and they'll help us, quote unquote, innovate whatever they want to get done. So the young adult cancer movement became this asset to the entire pharma, biopayer policy universe. So we were poachable in a sense because we had the community but stupid cancer wound up having the largest community because of
0: the radio show that's fantastic and you knew you were onto something then for sure and then or how long did it take it sounds like not very long for there to be some real momentum well, again, this was back in the days of when social reach was a word before
1: influence marketing became a word. Right. And I'm, I'm channeling, again, like DVDs and CD-ROMs back in <laughs> 2007, <laughs> 8, and 9. Uh, it was a very unique, irreplicable moment in culture to start a nonprofit. And having worked in the agency world and understanding marketing and trends, I had this unique crow's nest that I shared with all of the other fellow groups under this movement umbrella that if you want to generate revenue, it's about the value of your audience versus going after people to donate $5. Right. And at least for Stupid Cancer, I was able to, today we say lean in, but I, I literally just doubled down on if we're gonna become the millennial culture community, what companies want access to these people? Cause they may be sick, but they still need a bank account. Indeed. They still need to buy a car. They might be broke, but they have to pay their rent. You know, there was no apartments.com back then, but, you know, how do you get roommates.com to care about your sick person? Like, that was my thought process. And just to put that in a bun, I feel like I was able to skirt around the vulnerabilities of being donor-dependent by creating value through experience marketing versus through pity marketing. Right,
0: did, did, however, did philanthropy begin to ease into your mindset? Again, I know it was not something that was uh, popular in your mind in terms of begging for money, as you put it, but I would think philanthropists with, uh, you know, genuine enthusiasm would want to support you.
1: My response to that is akin to the fact that it was a different moment in time. Right. Major donors want cure. They don't want care. And this was the largely dogmatic principles of where the money was going. Oh, I already give $50,000 to Sloan Kettering or to the American Cancer Society or to this research group. I don't see any value. They didn't say these words, but they were saying these words, you know, inside their head, why should I support you? You don't do research and it, it hurt. All of us, we were like all about quality of life and what we called psychosocial well-being and access to -to peer-to-peer resources and experiences and navigating the the practical issues of getting through cancer when you're 26 and fertility navigation wasn't cure, wasn't sexy. So there really were not a lot of individual philanthropists that gave a shit about our mission. And we also aren't able to quantify impact. And that's, again, goes back to what I said before. You're not building houses. You're not curing disease. You're not digging wells. You're not providing water to African tribes. You're not doing things that are tangible. Right. And it's it's a, it's a devastating way to accept sort of a philanthropic slap in the face because you can't show, oh, this and this. So I started to figure out how I can show tangible deliverables. And – Just going back to marketing, we were able to go, Google Analytics was brand new back then. So I learned how to qualify and quantitatively put together impact reports on web traffic and lead conversion to newsletters, or listenership calls to action to take surveys. And we used to call it CPM in those days, channeling my Don Draper, CPM, (laughs) cost per millions. Exactly. Being able to put together a marketing deck for your nonprofit that wasn't about mission and why you should give, you know, for this amount of money, you can reach 100,000 people to lead convert to this call to action. No one said that in charity, but I put that together. And I feel it was just like a bit of MacGyver life hackery to avoid
0: my neuroses of asking people for money. Because you could appeal to a corporate entity or the corporate mindset, which... Absolutely translated in their marketing minds, right? And indeed yeah. brought revenue to you.
1: Yeah. More jargon back
0: then was corporate
1: social responsibility. You know, <laughs> CSR, you know, th- there is no CSR today. Now it's just whatever we can do to slap something pink on a blender and tell you it's for good. So it it, it was a moment in time, I keep saying that, that was very different than how I would speak to non in 2020.
0: Well, I was going to ask you, if, if fast forward, have you changed any of your philosophic stance toward, quote, pure philanthropy? Or do you still feel like that's problematic kind of from your perspective? So this episode is being
1: recorded during COVID. Right. And among the millions of things COVID has revealed about our country and our business and our dogmatic principles as citizens, it's shined probably the brightest light on the utter fragility of the nonprofit business model. Good and point. it all goes back to donor dependency. That vulnerability that too many of them have, right? Yeah. I, I witness this every day, collapsing nonprofits. They don't have, you know, reserve funds. They operate day to day. A lot of people have to keep their day jobs cause they can't throw both feet into the pool to run the company. And firing people is never a good thing and letting staff go and, and, and you know, the word pivots back in style because these groups have to figure out what do they do to stay alive, and it's made a lot of them question: Do we even need to deserve to exist anymore? What value do we have if we can collapse in a matter of two months? That's
0: well, and and you and I talked about this. We we put an intentionally provocative title on this episode, Matthew, as you have suggested. Because I think often the narrative is, well, I'm passionate about a cause, so why don't I start a nonprofit? But in fact, you have been emphatic about, well, maybe not, <laughs> why you shouldn't start a nonprofit. And maybe you could speak to exactly that because maybe it's the thing you just said of, you know, you're too vulnerable at the outset. Why are you even doing it? So, don't start a charity is a little clickbaity, but it lures <laughs> people
1: in on purpose because there are lessons to be learned for those who haven't yet started one and or may or be thinking of one, or for those who bad things haven't happened to yet and you may consider it once bad things do happen to you. And it's, it's difficult. It, there's a psychological warfare that goes on in the human brain when bad things happen to you where you are knee-jerk, horse-blindered into desperately wanting to fix it. And you can't. Because if someone dies of cancer, or there's a rare disease, or you're, you're, God forbid, you know, there's a a childbirth issue, or, you know, you can't fix it, but you want to fix it deferentially. And there's a lot of, let me say that again, there's a lack of objectivity in those moments, because you're not thinking of the bigger picture. And first and foremost, a nonprofit is a stigma. It's still a business. It's an S-Corp. It's a C-Corp. It's a B-Corp. It's an LLC. It needs budget. It needs marketing. It needs finance officers. It should be thought of as a 101 out of the gate. This is a company, a commercial
0: business yep, Well, happens to be tax exempt under the IRS code. Right. Is, is the advice to a nonprofit, do your homework because there might well be someone else doing this. You know, as you're saying, sometimes we're clouded by the kind of emotion of our cause and we just want to launch out. What would you advise someone who is that kind of has that feeling of euphoric nonprofit starter syndrome, perhaps? What do they do? Yeah, I mean, don't start a charity just means consider these
1: five things first. Yep. yep. One is that it's like running any business. If you don't run it like a business, you don't quit your job, you don't do it full, full throttle, it's not going to do what you'd like it to do. Number two is the obvious. Who else is doing this and do you like them or hate them? And why compete when you can be augmentative? And the third is, it's going to take a lot of money and time to get this off the ground. And I, I would say one of the more interesting feedback I continued to get as stupid cancer was, how do you do this? And I said, well, we're an overnight success that just took 15 years. <laughs> right. It was more than one night uh, for sure, right? no one wants things to take time, you know, especially when you're emotional. How do I fix this now? How do I make this better now? How do I raise money for research now? Because it's not fair that someone else has to go through this until I get to this point where I can make that better for them. And there's nothing infallible about that. That is a perfectly rational place to be in your mind when you want to do something. And, I mean, there's no more potentially controversial topic than kid cancer. It is horrible when a kid dies from cancer. Right. And it is perfectly acceptable for the parents and the family of that poor kid to want to start a foundation in that kid's name and raise money for the doctor that tried to save that kid. That is cursory one-on-one analog nonprofit. And you're not going to go to those parents and say, hey, take your horse blinders off, do something else that's not going to happen, right? This is their method of grieving and coping. You can't have interventions to say, don't do that in this moment. So I think it's a fairly wide market, but a fairly narrow window of individuals who, like I said, may have not yet had bad things happen to them, who could learn a lot before that happens. Or if you're in the narrow chasm of something bad happened I want to fix it. Should I start a charity? There are the five or six things you should reconsider or even consider before you do anything.
0: Great advice, Matthew. And that's why I'm glad we lifted it up. You're right. We did kind of clickbait folks perhaps into this conversation, (laughs) but it's important that they get here and listen and learn. And I want to speak to something else that you're uniquely qualified, which is the, the role of a founder of a nonprofit. In fact, you founded it. You were highly successful. And you got out. But talk about the mindset you went through and maybe explain to our listeners what you did and why you did it.
1: Wow. Yeah. There's a lot of unpacking in that. (laughs) Sorry. Five questions in one. Sorry. It's a good question. (laughs) I actually wrote um, a LinkedIn exit article that I was not expecting to get read 80,000 times. So that alone was validating enough that people reached out to me and said, blah, blah, blah fabulous, like great job. and What can we do? How can we help? But uh, let me step back because as I said at the top of the show, I started this off the heels of a a respectably decent career. I had some money. I was newly married with no kids and no real agenda. I had nothing to lose by investing a year or two of my life and seeing if this could become not a career for me, but something where I could just do something and feel good about helping the next me. It wound up becoming a phenomenon and the largest cancer community in the world for Gen Xers and millennials and redefined a lot of business models and Harvard case studies and whatnot. But by the time like 2017, 2018 rolled around, my kids were seven and eight. And this is the old tale of like, I want to be a dad and they don't know who I am and I'm traveling and, We hosted a trade show every year uh, during their birthday. And we, I I traveled to an international Congress every year, the weekend of my birthday. And I missed my birthday with my family and my daughter's dance recital. These are nodding heads on your show. Hopefully Uh, I'm nodding. I'm nodding myself. Yes. Yeah. Uh, And you know, you get old and creaky. Shit starts to hurt. You're like, that didn't, that wasn't (laughs) there before, you know, and you just, you kind of get tired and, and, yeah, you don't want to give up your your baby. But I I talked to my dad and he gave me a really incredible little quip, which is that uh, stepping down is hard, but knowing when is harder. Yep. And it, it took some really extreme, unfortunate circumstances to convince me it was time to go. But once I decided to do that, I reconciled one thing. It wasn't a mission accomplished, But in retrospect of what I felt had been tactically and tangibly accomplished between stupid cancer and our colleagues in common in the young adult cancer movement, there was no more Sisyphus. We're not pushing a massive boulder up a hill. It was mission accomplished with an asterisk. And now I can port that cancer in young adults sucks equally to cancer in everyone else. Right. Versus sucking ten times worse than everyone else, and that's how I reconciled. It was time to go. Was that what kind of runway, Matthew? I
0: mean, was that a year before that? Did you kind of have an intuition that all right, or was it more sudden?
1: You know, you don't realize it until it's right in front of you, like anything else. Like the right. trauma is very subtle. <laughs> and I think where where I really broke in half was in the summer of 2018. I had to be in Los Angeles for three consecutive weekends in a row for three different major events. I had to go to. Wow. And by the third one, I just, I couldn't imagine ever doing this again. And I was on a rooftop with a dear colleague of mine and I just, I blurted out, I don't think I can do this anymore. And it's time. It's time. But she said something to me that my wife wouldn't say, my dad wouldn't say my, our board wouldn't say, they said, you know what? You're going to be fine. Not, what the fuck is wrong with you? You know, <laughs> so, so
0: good for her. Good just for her, hearing right? those words.
1: Yeah. Uh, we, there was no succession plan. We had to invent it on the fly. Cause when I got back in August, I told our key people, their jaws dropped. They're the ones that said, what's going on? And we had to spend seven months. I'll use the metaphor of de velcroing me from the sedimentary layers of 15 years of the organization. That's quite an illustration, but yes, Yes. it's appropriate, isn't it? But I felt so free and I felt completely unrestricted. The albatross or the metaphorical albatross that I was enduring, uh, was reconciled by that I really had built my own glass ceiling and the only way up was out.
0: So advice for nonprofit leaders, veterans, I guess it's hard to give them some formula, is it not, when it's time to go, but you just sense it. And obviously this succession planning is something to talk about too, which you were kind of forced to do uh, suddenly perhaps.
1: Yeah, I, I can't understand the unique psychology that goes into every any individual's desire to feel accomplished by that. But if you start to hate your job, it's probably a sign (laughs) sign. (laughs) that you're not cut out to do what you're doing now. And when it stops being fun, and I say fun with quotes because no one wants to cure kid cancer and think what they're doing is fun. But if you wake up every day and say, I can't wait to get to work and make a difference, and here's how I'm going to feel about that then this may be a time to do some introspection. And nonprofit founder therapy is a very niche market. There are very few of us that know when the time is right to step down and, and just accept that parting ways with your baby is an issue of trust and ownership issues because it'll never be the same without you, but it doesn't have to be the same without you. Great point.
0: Matthew, was there some comfort, however, knowing that you had built an organization that could survive without you? Did that provide some sense of, I guess, transition for you? It did. I think the lasting
1: impact of Stupid Cancer as a brand, as impact will we'll go down on the annals of nonprofit advocacy. There's no doubt that there's a historical aspect to what it stood for, what it continues to stand for, and it will evolve. It is currently still there. It's doing great work. It's evolving. They're figuring out what's next. They're enduring COVID like any other nonprofit. And, Young adult cancer isn't going away. Like the mission will endure. It's like, you know, cancer is a supply-only market. No one wants to shop in that store. But the demand is endless because people still keep getting sick. So there's always a need for that. And it has to evolve to suit the nature of how people engage with quality of life, peer support, and mental health. So I have the absolute utmost confidence in its legacy, its impact, my footprint, and what it will carry forward without me. Because I'll never not be the founder. And I will always carry that mantle. And I'm very proud of that. And I've managed to channel that going back to my acceptance and loss and grief that I did go through. Sure, My new venture carries all that energy forward.
0: Well, I want to talk about that in just a minute. Let me ask you this, I guess I'm just curious, is it hard not to kind of stick your head back through the door and see what's going on? Or have you been very intentional about, no, I've got to completely stay away and let you know the new leadership do what they need to do? It was a very difficult conversation
1: to have, but the metaphor that I was able to come up with my, with my colleagues and peers was that, you know if you take a tootsie roll and you warm it up and you start pulling it apart, that string never breaks. You know, you gotta That's pull it really far apart. It. Right, And right. I just needed like like the score bar, the Heath bar, the toffee bar to crack in half and walk away. And I left the board of directors. I left the advisory board. I left our corporate councils. I just walked away, cut it out, sever- like ex- uh, excised it you from my soul. Literally. Yes, and my relationship with the organization now is kind of an in case emergency break glass. Okay. advisor Okay. but I, I never will not i hate double negatives be there <laughs> for them for
0: guidance and advice and support understood and i i can only imagine how hard it is as you said to birth an organization raise it see it succeed to not stay somewhat connected but you've pivoted forgive me for using the term again but everybody's there using you go. it I might as well I forgive you um <laughs> You have become an absolute champion of patient advocacy, and I'm guessing that has to be incredibly rewarding, That this new chapter. Talk about that. So
1: in retrospect, there was one specific thing that I genuinely missed after exiting Stupid Cancer, and it was the one commodity that they had to sunset in my absence, and that was the radio show. Wow, right. I mean, I've been called all sorts of amazing things in the media from the strategic douchebag of cancer advocacy to the Howard Stern of cancer to <laughs> the Dak Shepard done right and wrong of health advocacy that's high
0: praise that's high praise you
1: know what it's like in private parts like people listen whether he says good things or bad things and i was the curmudgeon the lewis black and i owned that personality across 450 shows and thousands of guests and millions of listens across that span we were first to market so we people flocked to that show i missed being behind a microphone and Right. right I took a sabbatical I took 2019 off to do like a tour and I got to see my kids and I had speaking engagements which I guess you know just like paid the rent for 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 sake but my community of peers and professionals helped me figure out how do I get back behind the mic without just being another podcast which is another don't start a fucking podcast (laughs) we could do separately (laughs) on your show but I wanted to figure out how do you get patient advocacy, patient education, consumer health protection, population science, public health narrative, and leadership into a broadcast platform, not just another radio show. Right, right. So Offscript Media, my new venture, is the most empirically emotional carry forward of my tenure hosting The Stupid Cancer Show. Yeah, love that. And 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 that's my emotional uh, sanctuary. This company is an extension of my work. So I haven't lost anything in transitioning.
0: Because now I told the emotional lines of owning both sides. That's fantastic. Obviously, we'll include in the show notes, uh, out of patience. Is it getting the response you thought it would? and, And is it fulfilling in a sense of what your mission is in starting Offscript Media?
1: It is. I mean, again, with an asterisk, we're less than a year old. We're trying to prove a brand new model and advocacy that an audio intervention, when you enter the shit I have cancer store, is of support and value to people who just want to listen to something and not watch something. And it's an augmentative way to improve awareness and we're sorry you're here and here are some resources and support. But at the same time, what I found is, and this is just a, a marketing analog in media. It's really about quantitative measures, how many listeners, how many eyeballs going back to the CPM that I did with the radio show, with stupid cancer. Right. What I'm learning now with our business model, and it gets just incredibly inspiring and intriguing as we grow to even just be a year old is the qualitative in what people need to listen to it's not about the spaghetti at the wall and hope people listen you know one giant napalm ad in a magazine and you hope you get some 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 clicks or whatever right you can create such niche content that's underwritten and supported by your clients and still have the same response that you're making a difference to people so this is again it's an extension of not just the radio show, but I can still be a cancer advocate, a public health advocate and run a private sector media company and still help the nonprofits and still help the farmers and the bios and the payers and the policy groups at the same time. So there's a tremendous emotional reconciliation as to what, not just what we become in a pandemic, no less, but what our capability is, to bring together the best of both worlds, that being the private sector and the nonprofit sector.
0: Love it. And of course you're shedding light on both the good and the bad, quite honestly, aren't you, in the nonprofit and particularly healthcare related sector. In fact, I want to lift up a point you have made quite eloquently about charities not working for free. And, and I think many in this, like you said it earlier, kind of it's a pity oriented mindset. Um, you know, we're, we're begging to, to work with someone. And you're like, no, stop doing that. But maybe you can elaborate further on what you mean by that. So this goes back to,
1: and, and this may be unique to healthcare and disease and patient communities and not necessarily like, you know, habitat for humanity or doctor without borders. Right. Right. When, when you're a patient or you've experienced something and you didn't ask for the wisdom of what it was like to go through that, you know, your story was unfortunate, you shouldn't have had to get sick to have all this perspective and whatnot. And when you're part of a patient community, those nonprofits are all often approached by industry to say, hey, can you tell all your patients in your community about X? And most of the nonprofits say, sure, they should totally know about X, but you're missing a monetization opportunity because your community was built and created by your nonprofit, which is funded by donor dollars or corporate sponsorship or advocacy grants. And for any one business to come along and say, hey, tell all your folks about this for free, they can go to hell. And it goes back to how most, again, in my checklist of should you start a nonprofit, are you a business person, right? you have to be ruthless and you have to run it like a for-profit company. You have to protect your margins and look at your expense lines and what is the value and worth of access to your brand and your stakeholdership. It's not perceived autonomically by most nonprofit founders. So when Walgreens or, you know, uh, some major corporation or some pharmacy or whatever comes to you and says, Hey, we would love to ask your patients to take this survey. Don't give it away for free because they expect it for free because, oh, you're a charity. It's good for you. No, 50 grand, a hundred grand, come up with a rate sheet, ROI and marketing, and then sell the value of your audience. That, Stand to up for me, the value. Right? Yes, Stand that up for to it. me is the missing piece of where nonprofits fall short, not to their own detriment. It's too easy to be taken advantage of by industry.
0: Yeah. Could not agree more. And I think that's that mindset, right? And, and, and I guess it goes both ways. If we in the nonprofit sector, if we're not willing to stand up for it, it's just gonna be a continuation, right? And the corporate sector will continue to just use us uh, in that kind of, uh, I think, diminished perspective. It's it's regrettably rinse and repeat. Right. Well, someone else I wanna bring up, Matthew, in our conversation, uh, a huge impact in your life was Dan Pallotta. And I would say, related to this discussion of nonprofits not valuing themselves perhaps enough, or perhaps more importantly donors not valuing and and asking nonprofits to to do incredible work with very limited resources. but maybe you could speak to how Dan Pilata influenced you
1: so I'd encourage all of your listeners to google dan Pilata p a l l o t t a He has one of the most watched TED Talks in all of TED Talk history called The Way We Think About Charity Is All Wrong. That is your onboarding to Dan Pallada before you even read his books, Charity Case and Uncharitable. He has been a staunch ally and I would almost say the rabble-rousingest rabble-rouser of questioning the value of nonprofits with respect to the fact that when you don't have impact, like when you were in cancer survivorship or, you know, AIDS work or disease management, donors want to know quantitative impact in what they are giving their money to. Well, I wanted to go to mission. Fine. That's great. But if we don't have electricity and employees and payroll and health benefits and you know, whatever dental, there is no mission. We can't do our job without this team. And they don't want to, quote, pay for salaries or pay for this because there's this judgment and stigma that somehow getting paid well at your rate, what you're worth in nonprofits is unfair to the mission. Yeah. And, crazy. Right. And I'm not saying anyone working in nonprofit should make $15 million a year. I think that's egregious. But if your budget is a billion dollars, don't you want somebody in that chair that can run a billion dollar company and choose to not make a hundred million, but make 15 million to do a great job? And Dan's other argument is that, you know, compensation being one issue, it takes money to make money. Right. And- If you invest $50,000 in a fundraiser to make a quarter million dollars, but you invest a quarter million dollars in the fundraiser to make $5 million, they're going to yell at you for investing too much money to make more money. Right. So there's your rub. And that's what Dan Pilato is all about. He's become a dear friend, a mentor, a colleague. And I've had him on my show a bunch of times. If people want to listen to my show out of patience, I'm the only Matthew Zachary in podcasting. So just Google <laughs> Matthew Zachary.
0: Oh, we'll have it but, in the show notes, but you're but easy to find. Yep. Scroll
1: through the feed and find the one with Dan Pallotta. He is exemplary and he doesn't stop. He's 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 not a guy to like, he knows he's, Dan's a guy that keeps reinventing himself where he's, he doesn't ever have a glass ceiling because he keeps building a new house to raise himself up into. So I wouldn't, again, go every listener in the nonprofit space. This is the therapy you didn't know you needed is to learn, <laughs> listen, and read
0: the teachings and dogmatic principles of the Dan Pallada. Love that. And we will absolutely lift it up. And I have a sense that you may lift up as one of your parting gifts, a book by Dan. Um, Is there progress on that front from your conversations with Dan and your own observations? Do you think we're making progress on the overhead myth? I think as Dan first coined it.
1: I'd like to believe so. And one other thing that Dan does as a project, he has something called Boulder Board, B-O-L-D-E-O, not Boulder, Colorado, the Boulder Board Training Series is for nonprofit board of directors members to get an understanding about donor relations, overhead myths, and how they can actually do their jobs as board members, but it's up to the organization to know what their job should be. Right. So efficiencies, professionalism, dogmatic principles, efficacy, rating and ranking each other, firing board members, like there's an ecosystem that is like this silent un- un- undiscussed, and his book, Uncharitable, is whatever that is the onboarding. If you're going to go into nonprofits, you read that book first. That's the textbook,
0: isn't it? That is the textbook. That's pedagogy. <laughs> exactly. Well, someone else who's not afraid to tell like it is, I'll put you and Dan in this category, is Vu Lee. And he has uh, been a wonderful spokesperson for the sector, again, shedding light on topics that are not always comfortable. But talk about how he has influenced you. And frankly, you've influenced him, I think, in a, a very positive way. So
1: I started out really rough and tumble. Some of the early days were, were really, um, we exacerbated the problem and made a lot of noise. And I eventually had to clean up a little bit to play the game. And I get that. Right. But Boo right. came along with, with this like, man, he was like me on steroids when I was like 26, whatever. <laughs> and he had, a non- he had a blog called Nonprofit with Balls. And it was the most like satirical, sardonic, fuck you to the donor universe of what everything's wrong with charity. He was like the, the, I don't know, like the, the spark, like the, the echo of Dan Pilata's next generation, the, the mm-hmm. kid you want to like amazing genius content. And like anything else, he eventually got funding for his charity and he pivoted to now it's called nonprofit AF, <laughs> which for the cheap seats in the back <laughs> means nonprofit as fuck. Right. But his, he, he's another dogmatic guy to read his stuff and just laugh and learn about the misgivings, absolute utter misgivings of the anecdotes and analogs of what goes on in the trenches of nonprofits. So he is another guy that just belongs in the consciousness of the nonprofit leadership uh, mindset.
0: Yeah, Matthew, a, a goldmine of advice, and you have created literally a good curriculum uh, as you put it, for folks that are in nonprofit leadership or aspire to be, is there any other kind of advice you would say, having been down that journey yourself, that you might offer someone pondering or uh, you know, aspiring to get better in nonprofit leadership?
1: I think we need trucker hats that say, you can make a difference without running a nonprofit. <laughs> That's not the only solution, right? If you're no, you can help. make the dent in the universe you'd like without having to start one or having to work for one.
0: Yeah, well put. And I think that's indeed why you and I both wanted a provocative kind of lead into this episode. We need people. We need good people to get involved, but there may well be an existing nonprofit you could help versus starting your own, right? Agreed. Wonderful advice throughout. What, which of Dan's books would you lift up, uh, did you say, as your kind of parting gift to our listeners?
1: Well, there were two. There's one called Charity Case and one called Uncharitable. I I would start with Charity Case and then Uncharitable, but just go to danpalata.com. It's all there. His entire universe is there and it's going to blow your mind.
0: Yeah, love that. And we'll happily do so. But I will equally with enthusiasm lift up all that you're doing, Matthew. Where do you want people to find you? Obviously, we need to check out out of Patience as a wonderful podcast venue. What else would you like people to know and or find out uh, to you know, follow you?
1: I'm online at matthewzachary.com. That's yep. Z-A-C-H-A-R-Y. People are spelling with an E. I don't know why. <laughs> Zachary. Okay, good luck with that. Hmm. But yeah, please check out my podcast or my radio show. I'm going to go with the radio show. I'm the yes. Stern of cancer says other people. So out <laughs> of patience with Matthew Zachary is available wherever you get your podcast. Matthew's been fantastic.
0: Thank you so much for joining me on the path. Patton, you're a good man. Thank you so much. Well, I hope you enjoyed this conversation with Matthew as much as I did and accepted the challenge to think differently about how you approach your professional journey and frankly, your organization strategy and ways that are perhaps entirely different than you started at the beginning of this episode. Don't forget the show notes are available on our website, pattenmcdowell.com, where you can find out more about Matthew, his recommended reading, and how you can connect with him, listen to his podcast. As always, I'd be grateful for you sharing this episode with someone else on the path. If you haven't already, you can subscribe by going to the podcast page at patentmcdowell.com, and you'll see links to Apple, Spotify, and all of the primary platforms. Don't miss out on any of these weekly episodes. They come out every Thursday, as well as bonus features we're producing at least once a month. Thanks for all you're doing in the nonprofit sector, especially right now, and keep up the good work for causes that are most meaningful to you. I'll keep bringing you content that can help you do it even better. Have a great week, and I'll see you next time on The Path.